Your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 98. Psalm 98. During these Sundays of Advent, we've been examining passages which foretell or foreshadow Christ's coming into the world. That's great. The problem is there's a sense in which every Old Testament passage foretells or foreshadows Christ's coming into the world. So this morning I want us to examine a less obvious Advent text, uh, Psalm 98. At first reading, you would probably not think of Christ's birth at all here. It's a psalm of praise. But in Luke's account of the Christmas story, he records three hymns of praise. One, Zechariah's Benedictus, as he praises God for remembering his promises and the birth of his son John, who will be a forerunner of the Messiah. Mary's Magnificat, in which she praises the Lord for his mercy, that he's lifted up the, the nobodies and brought down the, the somebodies in order to make his grace known in the world. And then Simeon's song of praise as he recognizes in the baby Jesus, this is God's salvation that's appeared. In each of those three compositions, we hear phrases and words and concepts drawn out of Psalm 98. In fact, Psalm 98 is the psalm which the great hymn writer Isaac Watts was putting to music when he wrote the song, Joy to the World. If you look in the back of your hymnal at, uh, where it gives scripture references and you look for Psalm 98, you'll be taken to Joy to the World, number 195. So this is, a, this is an Advent psalm, though it may not seem it as we read it the first time. But let me read it, and then we'll talk about it. Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for us. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sounding and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people with equity. Let me suggest two truths that kind of are intermingled in this psalm. The first is that God has come to save and to reign. God has come to save and to reign. The traditional King James Version of this psalm uh, speaks in verse 1 of God's victory. It says, His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. And that's not a bad translation. But victory has two sides to it. To the, to, to the friends of the victory, of the victor, victory is a salvation or deliverance. To the enemies of the victor, victory means judgment and rule. And, and both of those elements, salvation and rule, are found in this psalm. So let's look at each of them. First, we're told about God's uh, coming to save in the first three verses. Two key words describe this salvation in verse 1. Marvelous things, 
That's a word that always has God as its subject and nearly always refers to miraculous events. And then the word salvation, which is the common word uh, for rescue or deliverance or, or to save. What, we, what, what is in view here is not just some chance circumstances that have uh, turned out well for people, but what is in view is the majestic, uh, miraculous acts of God, whereby he intervened in the history of the world to defeat his enemies and deliver his people. God has come to save. Then in verse 2, we also hear about salvation, but we hear that there that God's salvation is the revelation of his righteousness. It unfolds his plan to set right what is wrong with the world. As you read through your Bible over the years, have you ever noticed that there are really only four chapters in the Bible that t- tell us anything about the world apart from the curse of sin? The first two chapters before sin arrives, and the last two chapters after sin is done away. But everything else in between, all those hundreds of chapters, are all about one thing. How God is going to rid the world. What God does to rid this world, his creation, from sin and the curse of sin and the disaster of sin that has, that has shattered his world. This righteousness of God to set things right. That's the theme of the gospel. It is the gospel of God's, that it's in the gospel that God's righteousness is revealed. As God does for us what we could never do for, for ourselves. In his death, he pays for our unrighteousness. And in his resurrection, he lives to give to us his righteousness. By his resurrection, he, he, he makes us right before him. In fact, the very name of Jesus means Yahweh saves. Jehovah saves. God has come to save. According to verse 3, God saves because he remembers his promises. Here we encounter our old Hebrew friend, the word hesed, meaning love or covenant loyalty. God has remembered his hesed and come to save us. He remembered the promise he made to Eve that her Seed would crush the serpent's head. He remembered the promise to Noah that he would save the earth. He remembered his promise to Abraham that through him the whole world would be blessed. He remembered his promise to David that one of his sons would arise to sit on the throne forever. He remembered his promise to Mary that her son would deliver the world from its sin. God has remembered and come to save us. Oh, but the other side of victory is here too. Verse 6 speaks of the coming of the Lord as king. That means he's come not just to snatch his own from the fire, but to establish his rule over the whole earth. And according to verse 9, that rule will involve judgment. He comes not just to judge his followers, but he comes to sit in judgment over the whole world. Now, on the one hand, that's a terrifying picture. The sovereign, omniscient God from whom nothing is hidden sitting on the judgment throne, weighing not only what we've done, but why our motives are the intentions of our hearts. It's a frightening picture that makes us long for his salvation. But at the same time, it's a wonderful picture. Charles Simeon, the uh, uh, commentator of a century ago, writes uh, this about God's kingdom. He says, under the government, 
of God, no partiality will be shown. On the contrary, his kingdom is administered with perfect righteousness and equity or fairness. His laws are equally binding on the rich and the poor. His invitations are equally extended to the most abandoned sinner and the most decent moralist. His benefits are equally conferred on all according to their attainments in holiness. And his judgments will be inflicted with equal severity on the proudest monarch and the lowest beggar. God has come to save and to judge and rule his world with fairness in righteousness. Now throughout history the world has seen glimpses of this. This, uh, this, this judgment and salvation together. In the days of Noah, God's wrath was poured out on the wicked, but by his grace, God saved a remnant in the ark. In, during the Exodus, God poured out his wrath of judgment on Egypt and on Pharaoh as he miraculously saved his people through the Red Sea and set them free. In the days of Lot, God poured out his judgment on, on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, but he saved Lot and his family. And again in the exile to Babylon, God judged the unrighteousness of his own people. But he also delivered them and restored them to their own land, to their home. Again and again, God has come to judge and to save. To save and to reign. And now God's ultimate salvation and his ultimate reign has begun. Isaiah foretold it when he wrote, Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And the one who comes to save will also rule. We repeat it every Christmas. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time on and forever. No wonder Isaac Watts saw the promise of Jesus' advent in this psalm. He's the promised Savior, God coming to save. He's the promised King, God coming to judge and rule. And he has indeed come to save and to reign. Joy to the world, indeed. So what should be our response? Well, that brings us to the second thing this psalm repeatedly says. Sing the greatness of our God. Sing the greatness of our God. You know, all music is inspired by something. Some reality which demands expression that's greater and more intense than just mere words. It might be the depth of uh, despair of a person who's lost hope and puts it into the blues somehow. Or, or it might be the ecstasy of emotion between lovers and it becomes a beautiful love song. But something causes us to sing. Here God says that his coming to save and to reign calls us to sing of his greatness. But if music is in order, what music is suitable for our Savior, King? Music is not all alike, you know. 
It is as diverse as the creative uh, skills of musicians. But what pleases the Lord? What about music does he care about? What is he listening for? Well, throughout this psalm, we're, we're given quite an explanation. According to verse 1, he says we're to sing a new song. Now, God does not change, but his mercies are new every morning. And as he's revealed his salvation in stages and glimpses throughout history and, the, and, and, and culminating into the grand coming of Christ, so now he applies it to us over many centuries in many places, in many different settings, many different kinds of people. And as he does, each new person in each new culture permeated by the gospel is to sing of his greatness, the greatness of his grace. For music to properly express the greatness and the grandeur of God's salvation and reign, it must be continually new, new forms, new tunes, new expressions, new, new, new words, new insights, sing a new song. This doesn't mean we throw out the old songs. Some of them are masterpieces. But if that's all we sing, our music fails to express that God is at work, that he's saving and reigning today. For his great saving work did not end in the 18th century. Moving on to verse 4, we're turned to, told to sing joyfully. Well, worship is service to God. It is not drudgery. And since worship is the pinnacle of conscious human activity, that we would worship our maker, in worship we ought to express, be expressing then our greatest joy. What a sad commentary on our faith. When we could get excited about a ball game, and we could hoot and holler about some dumb television show, but have absolutely no joy in singing, of the greatness, of the grace, and the reign of our God. Could it be we don't quite understand what we're singing about? Further, in verse 5, we're told our music should be played beautifully. We're not just making noise, the louder the better. We're to make music, the harmony of instruments and voices. Psalm 33 says, sing to him a new song, play skillfully. And shout for joy. You see, praise of our Savior King deserves to be the most magnificent, the most skillful, the most beautiful, the most harmonious, the most melodious music of which we're capable. Johann Sebastian Bach understood this, the great composer. He appended every musical manuscript that he wrote with the initials SDG, Sole Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone. And did you know that St. Matthew's Passion, which many think is, is Bach's absolute best work ever, was written for a single Good Friday service in his church. But that's all right. It was enough. The Savior worshipped that day, was worthy of this music. Sing beautifully, skillfully. Then in verse 6, our praise is to be played majestically. This is music for the king, the savior of the whole world. Its fanfare and extravagance cannot be overdone. I remember the first time I worshipped in the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church down in 
Fort Lauderdale, a church of 10,000 people or so, a huge place. I'm, I'm comfortable there. It's not my style of church, but here I was worshiping. <laughs> it's about time for the worship to begin. And people, there's a little small talk going on, and there's a little organ prelude going on. And all of a sudden, there's this sound. For coming out of the, the front of the balconies, and coming out of the wall behind us are whole banks of trumpets tied with a massive organ that organ that's played in the church. And they begin to, to blast their announcement, to, to, to herald the beginning of something. It sent chills up and down my back. It was majestic. It was like being summoned into the king's court. It silenced every other sound in expectation. But you see, that's not pretentious. That's not theatrical. We're called to worship in majesty, for we worship the king of kings. We tell of the greatness of our God. We have so much to learn concerning what is fitting for our Savior, King. Shame on us when we have bored ourselves with music that's unworthy of the Lord. Shame on us when we've gone as missionaries to other countries and imported our music into their culture as if it were superior rather than encouraging them to, to write expressions of praise in the music that they know. Shame on us when we've presented shoddy, half-hearted songs to our great God. Shame on us when we've acted as if writing worship songs ended a hundred years ago. God calls us to sing of the greatness of our, of our Savior, King. Oh, but according to this psalm, his praise doesn't even end with our songs. According to verses 7 and 8, the whole creation joins us in praise. Verse 7 says, the sea resounds. In other words, the relentless pounding of the surf drums out the rhythm of praise. The songs of the whales and, and the dolphins sing of their creator's wisdom. It says in verse 7 that all who live in the world will, will sing praise. Even the wicked who live in rebellion against God cannot help but reflect his glory. For when they write of the beauty of the world, they admit that the creator is good. And when they write of the misery of life, they, they admit that you can't live without him. Then verse 8 we read, let river, the rivers clap their hands. Have you ever stood and listened to a mountain stream? Uh, tumbling down over the rocks. It's the sound of steady applause 24 hours a day to the Creator. In the same verse, we read the mountains sing together with joy. The sound of every beast, the crash of every falling tree, the thunder of the avalanche all reverberate between the mountains, echoing His praise. The singing of the winds, the cracking of the ice, the patter of rain. Join the symphony of praise. Whether any human ear hears the sound or not, doesn't matter. The whole creation sings the greatness of our God. This is what Isaac Watts was talking about when he wrote, Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. 
Oh, dear people, we can get so caught up in duties, even the business of the church, or this season, caught up in the shopping and the social obligations and the preparation for Christmas. But God has called us to praise. Our Savior King has appeared in human flesh. He has accomplished our salvation through his death and resurrection. He now reigns with his Father. How can we be too distracted to sing the greatness of our God. The song Joy to the World is quite a different song than any other Christmas carol. Did you ever notice there's no mention of shepherds or wise men in that song? There's no recounting of angel announcements. There's no mention of the Virgin Mary or of Bethlehem. Indeed, we're not even told about a baby Jesus. None of the familiar details are mentioned. Ah, but we hear the substance of it all. God has come to save and to reign. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's called Jesus, for he saves us from our sins. He is called God's anointed one, the son of David, the Messiah, the King. And we haven't heard the good news are privileged to sing the greatness of our God. How fitting then, that in our celebration of Advent and Christmas, more than any other time of the year, it's all about the singing. The singing. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we sing about such stupid things. We sing little ditties of television commercials. We sing things that, if we thought about the words, we realize that they're, they're decadent. And yet, Lord, so often our music does not reflect what we claim to believe. And we just pray that it would, that you would grip us, Lord, with, with the, the greatness of your salvation, so that our hearts are full and bubbling over, whether we know how to do music or not, that we cannot help ourselves. We cannot stop singing praise to our Savior, King. During this holiday season, may our singing not be empty words of familiar tunes, but, O oh Lord, may it be full of praise and worship to our God. In his name we pray. Amen.